Well, good morning, Triumphant Grace. It's really good to be back with you today. After my message last week, I was not expecting to be standing up here again. Sometimes you just got to flow with the Holy Spirit, don't you? I think you better flow with the Holy Spirit. I was telling Pastor Valerie before service started today that of my struggles with today's message, the time and the editing and everything that went into putting this together, and I was tempted to give up a number of times, but it was like the Holy Spirit just kind of kept pushing me through. What we're going to talk about today is a, it's a big, big subject. We're going to talk about the book of Revelation. And as you can see, I brought in a number of books. And if you would read each of those books, you would find a little bit of my message in all of them. And so when it came down to trying to put everything together into like a 40, 45 minute message, it's like, okay, what do I put in? What do I leave out? How do I explain it? So it's understandable. It's one thing if you've read all these and more, and it's another if you're not quite as familiar with the book of Revelation. It's a very complex book. I mean, very difficult. But I think with what you will hear today, it will become a little simpler for you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here today. You are needed here today. I pray that you would give me a mouth to speak. Even more, I pray that you would open ears and hearts that you would empower your word that goes forth today with understanding, understanding that I cannot even begin to give, but that you can and that you will as we are open to receive your working in our lives. So we give you thanks and praise for all that's about to be said and heard today, and we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So the last time I spoke, I started a series that I entitled, Your Ultimate Destiny. But I never really addressed that subject last time, nor will I reveal it in this morning's message. Even though I'm still calling today's message, Your Ultimate Destiny, Part 2. I could have easily and perhaps more appropriately called this message, Unveiling Revelation. But I chose to keep the title, Your Ultimate Destiny, because that is the ultimate purpose of this series. And that series will not end today. It is what we are pointing toward. It is our goal. That is why we're talking about the end times. And it is why it is so important to have a correct biblical understanding of prophecy. And so, what our future, yours and mine, actually holds for us. It isn't just about believing right, holding on to correct doctrines about the end times, although that, of course, is important in and of itself. But it's important because a correct view of the end times reveals our ultimate destiny. It points us in the right direction. It shines a bright light so that we can see it in all its glory. The destiny that God has planned for us. A destiny more glorious than any of us could ever imagine. 
So as we continue today, please remember where we are headed and that it's not just about getting you to believe as I do, which I very much believe is doctrinally, biblically correct, but it's all about getting you to see and to understand what is your ultimate destiny. The last time I gave a very general teaching on the end times and the prophecies which speak of that time. In review, there are four eschatological views through which Christians have interpreted prophecy in the book of Revelation and the end times from the time of Christ right up to the present. Those four views are called idealism, historicism, futurism, and preterism. And there are also three major theological positions on the future return of Christ. And we talked about amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. And the premillennialists can further be subdivided into three more groups. Those who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, those who believe in the mid-tribulation rapture, and those who believe in a post-tribulational rapture. And after discussing all these different views and theological positions, I then took you on a personal journey of what I have believed at different times in my life and how the end times would unfold. And the purpose for all that teaching was to hopefully get you to see that there are more viewpoints on the end times than the one that you may presently hold. And it was also to encourage you not to hold on to that view just because it's the one that you've always heard or the one you've always been taught. But even more than that, it's that you would be willing to be taught and learn new things, always according to Scripture, of course, for you to be willing to study it all out to change your mind if need be, to be continually growing in grace and knowledge as you are led into all truth by the Holy Spirit. And since we are here talking about the end times, I am hoping that what I am presenting to you today and in the future, you will indeed be open to receive. So, as I finished the last time, I mentioned that as far as my personal beliefs go, I am what might be referred to as a partial preterist. In other words, I believe that the vast majority of prophecies in the Bible, which includes the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation, they have already been fulfilled. All of Jesus' words in the Olivet Prophecy that you find in Matthew 24 and in the parallel accounts of Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, came to pass exactly as Jesus said they would, and all within their generation. And in all my reading and studying, a generation to a Jew living in the time of Jesus, they would have understood this term to be about 40 years in length. And that term also didn't refer to a race of people as the Jews in general. It always, always referred directly to Jesus' contemporaries. Now, Jesus prophesied all this in around 30 AD. 
And remember, this was an answer to his disciples' question as to when the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. Let's quickly look at this in Matthew chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, asking, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Then for the next 30 verses or so, Jesus gives us that Olivet Prophecy. And then he says this in verse 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. You know what? Forty years later, the temple and Jerusalem itself was totally destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted. Not one stone was left on top of another. All the signs that Jesus said that would precede this ultimate destruction also happened, just as Jesus predicted. I haven't got time to teach on all that, but if you want to explore it in more detail, I can recommend two books in particular. Raptureless by Dr. Jonathan Welton and Last Day's Madness by Gary DeMar. They go into all of this in much greater detail. Two more points I would like to make on the Olivet Prophecy before we move on. First and most important is really a question. Why don't we just believe Jesus? When he said, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Wouldn't that just be good common sense? After all, he is God, amen? He knows what he is talking about. Jesus wasn't a mystic speaking a mystery that no one could ever understand. Again, he was giving a direct answer to a direct question from his disciples which concerned the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And yes, there were times when Jesus spoke in apocalyptic language. He was speaking as an Old Testament prophet did when speaking of the destruction of a nation. But Jesus' disciples knew what he was talking about. They understood what he was referring to. They knew it because it was in their holy scriptures. They simply believed Jesus. And you know, all the Christians in that generation around Jerusalem believed Jesus as well because they all fled to the mountains around Jerusalem according to Jesus' own instructions when they saw the signs Jesus foretold. Even though it is estimated that over 1.1 million Jews died in the ransacking and destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army, not one Christian lost their life. Why? They believed Jesus. And so much of the confusion over today's end time scenarios would disappear if only we would too. A second point 
is that our living in this, the 21st century, means for the most part that we can't even begin to imagine the importance and the impact that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple had on the Jewish nation or early Christianity. It was indeed the end of an age. Call it the end of the Mosaic dispensation, the Jewish age, where God was primarily dealing with and through the physical nation of Israel as his chosen people. This age, this dispensation, had been going on for over 1,500 years. Now we know that the Old Covenant ended and the New Covenant began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet the Old Covenant was still being practiced and observed by millions of faithful Jews throughout the known world. This was indeed a transition time, that time between 30 and 70 A.D. We could loosely call it the time of two covenants. The new covenant had indeed been inaugurated and was in full force, and yet the old covenant was still very visible and prominent within that culture and world. This is what Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 is telling us. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Amen. But he goes on to say now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And of course it completely vanished away once the temple was destroyed. After 70 AD, the temple was gone. A temple that had stood for hundreds and hundreds of years and even much longer than that, if you go back to the original temple that was planned by King David and built by his son, King Solomon. In fact, Jerusalem was gone. There were no more sacrifices, no more annual pilgrimages for the feast. The Jewish way of life, their worship, it was all gone. It was indeed the end of the age. And the destruction of Jerusalem actually went on for three and a half years. And this was the time prophesied by Jesus as the time of great tribulation. And it is in the past, the long ago past, and it will never ever happen again. An understanding of the importance of the end of the age that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem is critical crucial to our proper understanding of the end times. In my opinion, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was the single most important event in early Christianity, and really for all Christianity, and for a number of reasons. But the one that concerns us the most here is that it fulfilled prophecy. And it was not only the end of an age, but it was also a continuing focus and movement into the age to come that was inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This understanding is necessary and vital as we move into our discussion of the book of Revelation. Now obviously there's only time to do a very brief survey of Revelation and only time to address a few selected topics. But as we do, I believe that this discussion will be enough to convince you that the events 
spoken of within Revelation were also fulfilled completely in the destruction of Jerusalem. And also that there will be no future fulfillment of those events. And even if you're not fully convinced, in the very least, it should give you pause and get you to thinking more seriously about what I will present to you this morning. Now let's begin our discussion of the book of Revelation at its very beginning. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Here I have underlined what is our first point in our proof of the preterist viewpoint that Revelation was written to the early first century church about events that would occur during their lifetimes. Events that would lead up to and culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, tragically even, is that these two words are mostly ignored, overlooked, dismissed out of hand, or perhaps even worse, have had their meanings changed in order to fit an interpretation of the end times that suited an author's intention or viewpoint. Now let's take a look at these words individually for just a moment. And if we will just read Scripture for what it says, the logical conclusion that it points to is, in my opinion, simply overwhelming. The first word, which we see in verse 1, shortly, is translated from the Greek word entekai. And according to the Strong's Concordance, it means a brief period of time. It is also translated in other places in the New Testament as quickly. We see this in Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. Festus did indeed go where he said he would within a relatively short period of time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, writing to the Corinthians, says, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And the Apostle Paul meant what he said. He wasn't fooling around with the Corinthians. If the Lord released him, he was going to visit them in the very near future. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it means what it means. Shortly, quickly, in a brief period of time. Back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things 
which are written in it, for the time is near. It is translated from the Greek word engus. It is also translated in the King James Version as at hand. Can anyone guess what this word means every time it is used in the New Testament? Yes, it means near, as in close by. Near always means near. Let's look at just a couple of of examples, but I can assure you there are many more. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, when you see these signs from the fig tree, know that summer is near. Right around the corner, it's at the doors. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says here, Jesus was near Jerusalem. Let's read it. Now as he heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Jesus was nearby to Jerusalem. The rest of chapter 19 tells us that Jesus was just about to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's how close he was. Can it be any clearer that these words mean what they say? And another important point in all this is that both of these same words are also used in the very last chapter of the book of Revelation. Let's quickly turn to those verses. Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 and 10. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. Just keep that in mind. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So from these verses, we also see that the entire book of Revelation has been included in this time constraint of shortly, about to happen, in a brief period of time, and near, right around the corner, close by. We should also understand that if John had wanted to mean a distant time, off in the future, when he wrote this down, There were plenty of other Greek words that he could have used to say that. But these are the words he chose. These are the words he meant. To say what they do mean, and not something else. We earlier talked about the Olivet Prophecy, and the simple but key point of just believing Jesus. Along the same line of reasoning then, why don't we believe that in accordance with the clear word of God, that all the events of the book of Revelation were to happen in the near future, or shortly, just as it was written to the first century church? Let me make one final comment on this last verse that we have been looking at. John was told not to seal up the words of this book he was writing. In other words, the first century church was to know and understand about that which John was writing. It wasn't to be a mystery. It was written to them for their understanding and encouragement. 
And this brings us directly in touch with our next point in explaining that the events of Revelation were all fulfilled in the first century. And that point is context, context, context. We've already talked about the time context of the words shortly and near and how they are used with one meaning throughout the New Testament. We've seen how they have placed the entire book of Revelation within their time constraint. Now I want to spend some time talking about historical context. And the clear historical context is that Revelation was written to seven churches which were located in Asia Minor. We see this clearly from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. To state the obvious, these were real churches. Probably a number of small groups of Christians meeting in homes in each of the different cities. And remember, these cities were part of and ruled over by the Roman Empire. These Christians would have been surrounded by Roman culture, which included pagan temples, idols, and festivals, along with the worship that went hand in hand with it. Each city had their own special god, gods or goddesses, that they worshipped, which included in many places the worship of the present Roman emperor, as well as his dead predecessors. To not participate in your local culture could open one up to harassment, if not outright persecution. And the reality of these seven churches of the first century is that they were all under severe persecution. Of this truth, there should be no doubt. The persecution of Christians is recorded in Scripture throughout the book of Acts. We find reference to it throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. And we need to understand that beginning with the martyrdom of Stephen in 33 AD to at least 64 AD, the vast majority of the persecution came from within the Jewish people. And zealots like Saul in particular. We see that in these verses. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Continuing in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 9. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Then after his conversion on the road to Damascus, the apostle Paul is clear that the severe persecution that he was continually under came from the Jews. Now there were times when they got the Romans involved, 
But the Jews were the ones that were ultimately behind all this persecution. Hear Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians. From the Jews, five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. He was not preaching circumcision, which upset the Jewish nation, which caused them to persecute him. And this severe persecution of Christians by the Jews is acknowledged and addressed by John in many places in the book of Revelation. Some of these passages mention the Jews specifically, such as Revelation chapter 2. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Other passages are in inference to the Jews, such as Revelation chapter 16:6 or Revelation chapter 18:24, where both those talk about the blood of the prophets. Of course, all the prophets that were martyred were of course martyred in Israel by the Jews. Other passages in Revelation speak more generally about the persecution and martyrdom of those first century Christians. As a side note to this, the major persecution of Christians by the Romans didn't actually begin until 64 AD under the truly evil emperor Nero. And it continued up until his suicide in 68 AD. It is said that Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome that destroyed more than a third of the city in 64 AD. And that Nero was heavily influenced to blame the Christians by his Jewish mistress and wife, as well as other Jewish influences. It is also estimated that at the time, 15% of the population of the Roman Empire were Jews. So they were definitely in a position to have influence on the Romans, and so the means to cause all kinds of persecutions to the Christians. But to our main point, Revelation describes throughout this persecution that the church was undergoing, and John as well throughout is exhorting and encouraging these Christians to have patience, to withstand, to persevere, and to overcome in light of all this persecution. Revelation is truly what we would call an occasional letter. It was written to a specific group of people to address their specific need. Just like the letters to the Corinthians were written to the church at Corinth, just like Thessalonians was written to the church of Thessalonica. So Revelation was written specifically to the seven churches of Asia Minor and in general to the first century Christians who were undergoing this massive persecution. And again, to our purpose statement, the destruction of Jerusalem, to which Jesus prophesied, 
and to which John is actually referring to throughout the book of Revelation. That would bring an end to the main source of persecution that the Christians had been undergoing since the time of Stephen. That's why it would have been such a great encouragement to those Christians. To finish up this section on the historical context of the book of Revelation, specifically in relation to the seven churches as they are listed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I want to take the time just to look at one of these churches in particular, the church of Laodicea, and see how Jesus is speaking to this church in very specific terms, terms that would relate to this church alone. Let's start in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now listen to the historical context of this passage. The city of Laodicea had a poor water supply. So it had to rely often on neighboring cities to supply water to them. One city was well known for its mineral hot springs. The other city for its mountainous, clear, cold, fast-moving streams of water. The problem was that by the time these cities' water supply reached Laodicea through miles of aqueducts, each of their water was no longer hot or cold. It was lukewarm. Sound familiar? Let's continue. Again, Jesus is speaking. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. The historical context of this passage is that first century Laodicea was the banking capital of Asia, which meant it was very wealthy. In fact, it was so wealthy that it declined Roman financial aid after it was partially destroyed by an earthquake in 61 AD. A very proud thing to do, but it showed how wealthy they really were. Continuing on, again, Jesus says, And buy white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Two other things that Laodicea was known for besides its wealth and lukewarm water was for its black wool and its medicinal eye salve all of which Jesus has made reference to in this letter. And I could go through each of the other letters to the churches in the same way. The specific details of this and all the other letters to the churches should reemphasize to us the importance of the historical context of the book of Revelation as a whole. So please keep in mind the two critical points of time and historical context for the understanding of Revelation as events that occurred 
in the first century AD, which culminated with the fall of Jerusalem. Now let's jump back into the book of Revelation and take a closer look at some of its more interesting symbols and how they are interpreted through a preterist and, in my opinion, a purely biblical viewpoint. First, let's turn to Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to read this whole passage. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Who is this woman? The great harlot mystery, Babylon the Great. Now in John's time, the ancient city of Babylon no longer existed. It had been abandoned between the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C. and was completely desolate. And I believe for the following four reasons that Babylon the Great is none other than Jerusalem of the 1st century. First reason, five times in Revelation, this Babylon is called O Great City. Two more times it is called Great city. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, it says this, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Of course, this is speaking of the city of Jerusalem. Second reason. It says Babylon was guilty of the blood of the prophets. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 24, and chapter 16, verse 6. And according to both Jesus and Paul, only Jerusalem killed the prophets. We see this from Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill, crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And then Paul says this to the Thessalonians, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. A third reason 
John's people are commanded in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, to come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And the only city Jesus ever commanded his followers to leave was Jerusalem. We see this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 and 16. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, which is, of course, the temple, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that's exactly what the Christians did. And the fourth reason, Scripture tells us that this Babylon would be destroyed over six times in Revelation chapter 18. And the only city Jesus said would be destroyed was Jerusalem. That's according to Matthew chapter 23, where he said, it would be left to you desolate. Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus said, not one stone would be left on top of another. The simple conclusion for me from these four points is that Jerusalem is Revelation's Babylon. So now let's take a look at the scarlet beast that the great whore was riding in Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. We are given clues to the beast's identity in verses 9 and 10. But before we get to revealing its identity, let me say that we are talking about the same beast that we first see come on the scene in Revelation chapter 13. It's the great beast from the sea, and this is how it is described there. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Obviously, with both beasts having been described with seven heads and ten horns, we are dealing with the same beast. Now let's look to discover its identity. Revelation chapter 17, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Remembering historical context, in the first century, anyone reading or hearing these words, they would have instantly recognized John was speaking of Rome. Rome was widely known as a city of the seven hills. The original ancient city was founded on Palatine Hill. And the other six hills are Capitoline, Quirinal, Viminal, Esquiline, Caelian, and Aventine. The Roman emperors who ruled the known world built their palaces on these hills mostly on Palatine, but on others as well. With this understanding that Rome is the beast, let's continue in verse 10. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short while. So now it is revealed to us that the seven heads not only stands for the empire of Rome, but for its seven kings, or as they were called then, emperors. Here's even more history for you, but this is important 
because we are still establishing historical context here. Rome was established as a republic in 509 BC. The Roman Senate was elected by the citizens of Rome. The Senate then appointed two men as consuls who ruled over Rome for one year, after which they had to leave office, and two new consuls were named. This was to prevent any one man from amassing too much power. This era of republic ended with the rise of Julius Caesar to power as emperor-dictator in 46 BC, until he was famously assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 BC. Rome was then embroiled in civil war for many years, until Julius's adopted son Octavian, who later became known as Augustus, came to power in 27 BC. He was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. So here are the first seven kings or emperors of Rome. Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, and Galba. Galba's rule only lasted six months. Scripture tells us of these kings, five are fallen, which be, would be the first five emperors. One is Nero, and one who is to come, who when he comes must continue a short while, Galba. Based on this evidence and others, Preterists, as well as others, believe Revelation was written during the reign of Nero, and most likely between 64 AD, when he started his horrific persecution of Christians, and his suicide in 68 AD. One final note about the overall character of the beast is from Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, of course Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And we could best describe the reign of Nero as being one of pure evil. Here is but a brief description of his brutal and immoral nature. He killed his own mother, his brother, his aunt, and wife. His wife by kicking her to death. He killed many prominent citizens of Rome. He was also known to tie slaves to stakes, both men and women, then dressed himself up in a lion's skin, and then attacked and molested their private parts. And this is not to even mention the thousands of Christians he had killed in horrific manner during his cruel reign. Ancient literature all agrees and testifies that Nero was of a cruel and unrestrained brutality. Pure evil, indeed. Another interesting parallel to Nero's reign is in Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 5. Speaking of the beast, of Nero, it says, He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemy, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God 
to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And we also know from history that Nero's war on the Christians began in November of AD 64 and lasted until his death in early June of 68. Almost exactly three and a half years or 42 months. Now let's talk for a moment about what is perhaps most widely known and talked about symbol in Revelation. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. The mark and the number of the beast. These have, of course, been the subject of many wild speculations, especially over the last 50 years. Let's see where a preterist understanding of these verses might lead us. Using historical context, we've already made a strong case that the beast is the Roman Empire, and is manifested in its king, emperor, Nero. Now, Scripture has told us here is wisdom and to calculate the number of the beast, so let's do that. Nero's full common name would be Nero Caesar. That is how the Hebrew spelling of Nero Caesar would be. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language also has specific numerical value for all its letters. Here are those values. If you add up all the letters of the Hebrew name of Nero Caesar, we come up with 666. As for the actual mark itself, I know of two very viable possibilities. First, in the first century, it is said that in order to buy or sell in the Roman markets, before entering, you had to burn incense to Caesar and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. Afterward, you would receive some of the ash on your forehead or hand, perhaps even a document that certified you to participate in their market. A second possibility of the mark of the beast is that John is not referring to a visible mark at all. The mark of Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, would have reminded a first century Jew immediately of scriptures such as Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, where it says, speaking of holy day observances, it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Or perhaps Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, which is speaking of the word of God. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. These were not literal marks, but they were signs of an inner disposition. So then, just as the seal of God that is put on the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, or the name of the Father that is written on their foreheads in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, are not literal marks, 
then neither is the mark of the beast. It simply refers to whom is your loyalty and allegiance. In the first century, it came down into your heart of hearts. Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Christ Lord? This concludes our discussion today of Revelation from Preterist viewpoint. I know I haven't gotten to talk about the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, but I can tell you, look at them not as chronological things happening, but different angles of the same scene, which is the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now I realize that this was the briefest of sketches into a very limited number of topics within a very complex book. My purpose in this message was not to answer all your questions. It was only to pique your interest, to get you thinking in perhaps ways you have not thought of in the past, to encourage you to study these topics and this fascinating book in more detail on your own. In my own study, I am indebted to authors, biblical scholars, and historians such as Professor N.T. Wright and his book, Revelation for Everyone, as well as doctors Jonathan Welton, John Noe, Kenneth Gentry, whose books you see in front of you. And there are so many more. As a short review, an important reminder, whether it is the Olivet Prophecy, when Jesus says this generation shall not pass away until all these things come to pass, or the book of Revelation, when it is framed at the beginning and at the end by these things which must shortly take place, or the time is near. We need to realize that God knows what he is talking about. God knows how to tell time. We absolutely need to listen and abide by the scripturally given time constraints. And I know you're probably tired of hearing these next words by now, but they are critical, historical context. Jesus was speaking to his disciples in the first century of things they would see and experience. In Revelation, John, well, Jesus really, is talking to the first century church about their situation and about what would happen to them in the near future. And happen it did with the events leading up to and culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem. So what does this mean for us today? Is Revelation still relevant for us? Well, of course it is. Just like the Gospels are relevant, even though those are all in the past, just like the Epistles are relevant to us, even though they were written to the Galatians or to the Romans or whoever, people and churches of the first century. We can and should learn from them, grow from them, be encouraged by them. According to Dr. Jonathan Welton, here are five significant lessons that we can learn from Revelation, despite the fact that it does not prophesy events in our future. One, we have been fully established in the new covenant with our bridegroom, Jesus. All wrath has been poured out on the old covenant system, and it is never to be repeated. We are even now working with the king to make all things new. 
Jerusalem is not to be an idol for the modern Christian. And lastly, there is no reason to fear a future one world government run by the beast. Did you know there is no mention of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation? There is no mention of a rebuilt temple there or anywhere else in the New Testament. Common assumptions in the futurist viewpoint. There is no reason to fear the future. There is no coming great tribulation. That was in the long ago past with the destruction of Jerusalem. What we do have to look forward to is the glorious appearing, the return, if you will, of our God, our King, our Lord and Savior, and our older brother and friend. Jesus Christ is returning, and with Him comes our ultimate destiny. But that's for our next message. Stay tuned. And remember, God loves you more than you could ever imagine, and His future for you is better than you could ever imagine.